we are excited to uh, man continue our series in Nehemiah. At least I'm really excited about it. And I don't know if I, I think it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, it might just be a lot of coffee that I had this morning, but I'm pretty sure it's the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, we're going to continue in this series. We started last week called Revive and Rebuild, where we're working through uh, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, in the Old Testament, Nehemiah follows the book of Esther and is before, or follows the book of Ezra and is before the book of Esther. So, uh, yeah, turn there with me. But, but as we kind of settle in, I want to, to really share something I don't think that we've kind of hit on, uh, in a while, but something that we want to be really commonplace in the life of, of Center Church and in our church. And it's kind of a goal that we have in terms of being a people that gather. And so, man, I hope that maybe even if you don't hear it in uh, these words, I'm going to trip over that. Uh, uh, you maybe you hear it uh, in a similar way uh, in the life of our church. But um, whether it be on Sundays or whether it be uh, in one of our missional communities or just in relationship with the Center Church family, man, uh, something that we believe is is that the week. Well, was never meant to push us to Sunday. Rather, man, something we really believe in is that, that Sunday, and, and especially when we gather together to, man, worship, uh, man, our King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but also sit under, man, the teaching of God's Word, is that what happens here would actually uh, exponentially push us out into the week. So often we live, we live lives where Monday through Saturday we're just trying to get to today, Right? But man, we're, we're actually, I don't think we're meant for that. Really, today should be a time that, man, no matter uh, how we come into the room, we come in knowing that we can rejoice and celebrate a risen Savior. And that looks a lot of different ways. But, but then in doing that, that, that we would refocus our lives on this good news, right? And that then we would go out and that this would kind of propel us into the rest of the week. You see, the gospel in the life of a believer is intended to shape every part of our life. And not just every part of our life, every day of our lives. It it never grows old. The good news of the gospel never grows thin. And it is this transformation that, that should lead us to a deeper understanding of God's story. That in the words of John Henderson, he says, when we understand God's story and our place in God's story, it moves us. From a need-driven me orientation towards a grace-filled God orientation. You see, we begin to uh, move away uh, from, man, the desires of self. And our focus begins to be met. Our gaze is directed towards God and His glory. And man, what He wants to do in and through us. What this does is it leads us really into the goal for this series in Nehemiah. Which is that we would see the glory of God manifested through the lives of His people as they seek to rebuild and revive that which has been torn down. This is to be the mark of our lives as the church. You see, we are God's display people. And so even as we look around, and man, there's many things in life right now that we can look around and see and really, uh, man, point the finger and say that is in ruins. Some of it which might need to stay ruined. But other things that we can see in ruins say, God, what do you want to do with that? How do you want to revive that? How do you want to rebuild that? And man, we believe the same holds true for the life of the church. 
And there are things in the life of the body of Christ that seem to be in ruins. And some of those things, maybe we need to just leave where they're at because they're not biblical. They're not centered upon the gospel. But there are other things that God's saying, hey, this is still good. It's still needed. So what we can do is we look around, even in the midst of things looking like they're ruined, is we can stand up in boldness and with hope uh, rather than shame. And we can live out the calling that God has placed on our lives. Remember this story of Nehemiah. If you've heard it before, really, if you ask anyone, hey, what's Nehemiah about? Well, it's about they, they just rebuilt some walls. But as I said in week one, and I'll say all the way through, this is not a story about the, about the rebuilding of walls. This is a story that points to the rebuilding and revival of God's people, the church. Even in the midst of disappointment, even in the hardship of opposition, we hold on to better news that is good each and every day, no matter our circumstance. And let, let us run to God in prayerful dependence and be led by the power of His Spirit to live lives that adorn the gospel in word and deed every day, not just on Sunday. And so with that, let's jump back into Nehemiah by reading Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. There's going to be a lot of text today, but just bear with me. It says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse four, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let the letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, so Nehemiah, as we saw at the end of our time last week, He is the cupbearer for Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, the Persian king. And and he finds out in chapter 1 that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, that God's people, man, uh, man, they are uh, just filled with shame uh, and uh, things aren't good. And man, in, in light of his concern 
for the people of God, because again, it's not about the walls, but also in light of his uh, his uh, man passion for God's glory. Nehemiah uh, responds by weeping and mourning, crying out to God in humble repentance, and he asks God that he would make for him to make a way for him to help bring change. And it's this response that we open our time in chapter 2 with, where if you look at the timeline, five months after Nehemiah began praying, he finds himself presenting wine before the king. Now, Now I want to note two things here. One, prayer is the means by which the work of God gets done. For it is humble submission and a willingness to align oneself with the one who not only creates, but sustains and rescues. That's what prayer is. And yet, even as we look at it, the means that most, maybe the means that you and I turn to only, it, it, prayer is the thing we turn to only in short bursts and dire moments. And do you feel that truth today? Do you see that in your life today? And if so, like, do you feel the conviction of that today? And I feel it. And the reason I feel it is because maybe you're like me. I'm a doer. Right? I see a problem. You know, maybe not immediately, but give me a couple hours and let's fix it. Right? I'm a doer. And doers just get things done. You see, the reality is, and I think it to be true for many of us at times, if not really most of the time, is that we have believed the lie that we are enough. That we can do enough. And while prayer is needed, it is more out of the need for a cosign from God than it is out of a need for dependence and direction upon God. You see, usually what we do is we decide what the will that we want is. And then what do we do? We go to God and say, God, I want you to co-sign this. How's that working out for you? Probably pretty selfishly, right? It may have fruit, but it's probably a lot of selfish fruit that doesn't last very long. Hey, but how did Jesus, how did he pray? How did he pray in the garden? He said, God, you know, if there's another way, let it be. But what? Not my will, your will. But the second thing to note is that Nehemiah's heart for concern towards God's people and God's glory. Man, what happens, what we see in this text is that it has manifested itself outwardly in sadness. You see, Nehemiah is so connected to what's taking place in the midst of the family of God that he can't help but to carry the weight of sadness that those a thousand miles away feel as well. This, this church is what we're after. This is what I would term as gospel culture. It is a culture that is concerned for and willing to bear the brokenness with one another because Jesus has come and borne the weight of sin, death, and the grave for us. And that kind of culture, man, it, 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 while we, when we do that, man, it's going to show itself outwardly. Which is why Romans 12.15 commands us to what? To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep.
So we, we should share concern for one another. And not just concern, but man, that, that concern at times, should call us, it should cause us to emote. So again, when was the last time that you really sat down and asked someone in this room, hey, how are you doing? Maybe when's the last time you were asked that? And then in the response, you didn't immediately try to fix it, right? But you said, man, I'm sorry, that's hard. Let's just pray about that. How can I serve you? How can I walk with you? How are we rejoicing for people in this room? How are we weeping for people here? As you think about that, are you present and aware enough to know what's going on? You see, to be present is to know, and to know comes with concern, not for self. It's a humble concern. You see, humility, as C.S. Lewis says, and if you've been going to equip and reading self-forgetfulness, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You see, to know what's going on, if we're going to know what's going on in one another's life, it's going to take more than an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday. And so it's with this heart of concerned sadness that Nehemiah comes before the king. He presents wine to the king. And the king, oddly enough, takes notice. And he says, hey, why are you sad? He says, look, it's not because the wine was poisoned. That's not the sickness you have. He says, you're sad of heart. You know, if there's, I I wouldn't um, tell you to do anything that Artaxerxes probably did. But he, he has some awareness here that we should probably take note of. He models something for us, an awareness of what's going on in the life of somebody else. And so when Nehemiah hears this and he sees it as an open door, and so he responds, he says, King, it's not because of you. It's in light of the city where the graves of his fathers, where the graves of his people lie in ruins. Now, we just kind of read that and be like, why in the world is he talking about the graves of his father, right? But, but actually, this is a really good response because uh, in, in the culture that Nehemiah finds himself in, especially uh, Persian kings, they had a deep respect for their ancestors and graves. And so this is very intentional. And so uh, because it's intentional, because it catches the king's ear, what does he do? He says, well, what do you need? Well, what that means is what he's saying is, hey, I can make that problem stop. How can I help you? Man, what a picture of God's sovereignty on display. He he uses wicked pagan kings to fulfill His purposes. For His plans are still of the prosper. He has not forgotten us, right? Like we just sang about it. He's with us in the fire and the flood. He's sovereign. He uses this wicked pagan king to fulfill His purposes. Then He actually uses him to provide for His people. Nehemiah says, hey, if you could just provide me with all the materials. And he's like, yeah, sure. Amen. (laughs) And then he sends him out in the authority to reveal that which has been torn down. Well, what's more important is Nehemiah's response. Because in the moment, he does not do what we might. 
When, when he's asked, before he even makes his request, Nehemiah says he stops and he prays to God. He sends up what in churchy language we would say a shotgun prayer, right? A laser prayer. A quick, you know, prayer to God saying, God, okay, God, you brought me this far. You've opened the door. What's the next step? Just imagine God's response to Nehemiah. Hey, I want you to just ask if you can go. But hey, don't stop there, Nehemiah. I want you to just say, hey, I want all the supplies too. And letters so that I go. Go ahead and send you know, some people with me to protect me. Man, Nehemiah responds in boldness. You see, our common response is to pray until the door opens and then say, hey, God, thank you, but I got it from here. And then what do we do? We go in guns blazing. We destroy everything. Right? Like that. It's like, because we're doing it because like we, there's something in us thinks, man, I can be the Savior. You got me this far. Let me pay you back. But Nehemiah continues in dependence and faith and he prays before boldly asking for the king to provide everything for rebuilding and reviving the walls of Jerusalem. Do you see what dependence and faith produces in the life of faith? It produces boldness. You, you, can, you can make a big ask when you know God is involved. And I want to stop there and I want to say that I'm not talking about some name it and claim it prosperity gospel. That's bad theology and it's wicked. But you see, you can have bold faith to ask for God's will to be done and His glory to be made known through the display of His people. God's always about that. Nehemiah doesn't say, hey, I just need a Lamborghini, God. It'll get me there real fast, you know. Give me a couple cranes, we'll build that wall real quick. You know, let's do this. I'm going to keep it all later, but I'll say it's, you know, you gave it to me. That's not what he does. Because he has concern for God's people and God's glory. What we find is that his boldness is not rejected. Rather, he's sent out with permission for the journey, provisions to make it happen and the stamp of authority by the king to rebuild the city. Not because the king simply had a change of heart and was moved by sympathy. But, and I love the end of verse 8, it states, he says, the reason this happened is what? Because the good hand of the Lord was upon me. Yes. So today, what has God called you to walk in obedience to? Like in your life, what has He called you to walk in obedience to? And you, do you believe in dependent faith that His good hand is upon it? And if so, what are you waiting for? Dependently pray and boldly ask, but in doing so, you need to know this. You will face opposition. For every plan, no matter how big or small, will come with some sort of obstacle. And the question when faced with opposition is how will you respond? Will you settle with how far you make it and just say, ah, I quit. This is good enough. Or will you persevere knowing that what God begins, he will see through to its fulfillment? You see, the, ten the tendency when opposition comes is to curl up and quit or apathetically settle. I heard an example of this, this a couple of weeks ago about a koi pond. So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard him before, but there's a comedian named Nate Bargatze. 
Uh, he's a clean comedian. If you haven't listened to anything, he's hilarious. He has two specials on Netflix. He actually supports a whole lot of Christian nonprofits. And man, the guy, like, I just love his delivery. It's phenomenal. But he was getting interviewed by a talk show host uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they asked him about his family. And he said, oh, my family's great. Parents are great. Uh, he said, you know, my mom for Mother's Day decided she wanted a koi pond. He says, you know, she's to that age that, you, you know, before you've never wanted a koi pond, but then you hit a certain age and that's all you've ever wanted your entire life. And so he says, so we decide that's what we're going to get her for Mother's Day. And so he goes, we, we didn't hire anyone out. You know, we're, you know, we, we figured we could do it. And so we decide we're going to dig the hole for her. And he says, so we got out there and he was like, you know, you think you watch on TV and man, digging holes looks really easy. He goes, but it's impossible. He was like, it, it, we started and so fast, he was like, I, I'm not going to be able to do this, right? He, he was like, I don't know what they're showing on TV to make this look so easy and simple because it's not. Then he goes on to say, so much so, he said, look, my mother got her koi pond, but it's an above ground one. <laughs> and, and I like, I hear that and like, I, I like, I laughed about it, but is that not us? It is that not us? And today, how do you relate to the obstacles in your own life? When it gets hard, when the slightest hint of opposition in your job, in your marriage, uh, man, when the opposition of parenting, when, when the slightest man check about who you are as a follower of Christ, your identity, you begin to wrestle with it, man, what happens? And for me, when I feel opposed as a pastor and a leader in the church, man, is my response, man, for you in life, is your response like Nehemiah's towards those who are displeased with his coming? Or is it to give up and settle for some form of shallow, compromised obedience? And the world is full of above ground koi ponds of faith. The world is full of above ground pools of faith, right? Which never last. But that's what we run to. You see, these two oppressive people that we find in the story, they didn't like that Nehemiah has shown up with a plan to revive and rebuild because it threatens their comfort. You see, they were really good at bullying God's people. But Nehemiah doesn't care. And he's prepared for he walks not simply with the authority of the king of Persia, but by the authority of the king of kings and lord of lords. And today, if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter the obstacle, you can depend, trust, and boldly move forward by the authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He goes before you as your victory and behind you as your protector through it all. I think there's something we need to know, and it's this. If we're going to be a people who seek the revival and rebuilding of the community of God in Brenham, Texas, and beyond, we will experience opposition and challenge. There will always be forces and opposition, but let's, by the empowerment of the Spirit, first support one another and in unified boldness, keep digging and building. And so with that in front of us, uh, let's just close out the time in Nehemiah by reading verses 11 through 20. Again, a lot of verses, but just stick with me. This is Nehemiah speaking. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. All right, so upon his arrival, look, look at how he responds. Again, he doesn't just get to it. Rather, he assesses the situation before him. Instead of immediately acting, he takes in what's going on around him. And man, this is something that we can all, we should relate to life. When, when faced with brokenness uh, in, in terms of your identity in Christ. And who you are as a follower of Jesus. When faced with brokenness in your marriage, parenting, or, man, just your preferences. Is your first response to prayerfully assess or to act? When you think about your marriage, when when, uh, something happens and there's brokenness in your marriage, maybe your spouse did something, or, hey, let's just think for a second, maybe you did something. Right? Probably did. (laughs) What do you do? I think by and large, most people is defense and attack, or is it to graciously listen and work through it? Usually knives are out, right? It's okay. It's a safe place. (laughs) To be honest. Not all the time. What about parenting? Like when you're... Sweet little baby child shows themselves to be a sinner like you, (laughs) of whom you are foremost, right? Do you go on the offensive of a yelling tyrant? Or do you take a moment just to breathe and patiently bear with them? For they are kids who, while sinful at times, might need a little more help working through where they are. Something Haley and I have been talking a lot about and, and really wanting to try, she does it better than I do, is in that moment when, you know, the kids' emotions are a 10 and our emotions are a 10, we just say, hey, we're going to give us two, three minutes. Go in your room. We're going to go over here. We're going to calm down a little bit and then we're going to meet back. We're going to talk about this. Maybe you just need a moment instead of you berating them. A really good litmus test that's really hit me hard is um, watch your kids. How they respond to others might be modeling how you respond to them. 
oh, don't like that. (laughs) Don't like that. What about life? What about when people don't share your worldview? Do you seek to demonize them and forcefully let them know why they are wrong in passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive ways on social media? Or to their face, mostly on social media. Or do you prayerfully look for ways to serve, love, and share good news? And guess what? Good news is not CNN. And good news is not Fox News. Good news is the good news of the gospel. That's the only place hope is found, redemption is found, and things are restored. I think we probably need to turn some of those things off and look to God prayerfully, maybe for months, that he would, if we ever hope to see revival and rebuilding. Instead of doing that and sharing good news, maybe we should share it with them in winsome and yet boldly true ways. You see, what's so amazing about what Nehemiah does once he arrives is that he displays trust that God's timing, God's patience, and God's plan are far greater and better than his. And he wants to know the depths of what is around, uh, the depths of what is around him instead of running to fix only the surface level brokenness of the walls. Nehemiah here seeks to identify the depth of brokenness around him for it is only by doing so that the work of revival and rebuilding can begin. He not only enters into it, he sits with it so that he might understand it better. The same holds true for our lives and in the life of the church. We must be willing to pull back the layers to see and to sit in the brokenness. We must be willing to enter and sit with it so that it might be exposed at its depths and then healed by the power of the gospel. Again, I'm not talking about walls, I'm talking about life. Today, what brokenness in your life does God and the church need to enter into and sit with? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. So that healing might come. Quit running to quick surface level fixes. To see revival and things rebuilt, we are all, I say all, because this is a collective thing. We are called to be a community for we all the, we are the body of Christ are going to have to go much deeper. And you see, it's this awareness and entering in that leads Nehemiah to finally respond. And in working through his response, the first thing we see is that, man, Nehemiah is just bluntly honest with where God's people find themselves. He pulls no punches when it comes to the... He says, man, look at the state of trouble we're in. Now, now I want us to quickly realize how countercultural that is. You see, human nature, left to its own desires, is always resistant and overly sensitive to inconvenient truth. None of us like to be confronted with our brokenness and failure, do we? We, like Adam and Eve, seek to run and hide and make our own fig leaves. Which is why we expend so much fruitless energy on dressing up our sin, pointing the finger of blame, uh, pushing it under the rug and making excuses for why we are broken the way we are and respond to things as poorly as we do. You see, the Bible, according to one of my buddies who's a pastor, his name's David Ritchie, he says the Bible has a word for this type of living. For the type of person who refuses to acknowledge when they're wrong, he says that person is what? They're a fool. 
You see, foolishness is not unintelligence. It is according to the Word of God, being wise in your own eyes, refusing to listen, listen and pushing back in pride when you're corrected. You see, wisdom, which is the opposite of foolishness, is the ability to humbly listen and to not have one's ego crushed by truth, even truth that exposes brokenness. For truth, when rightly seen, does not convict by sin or shame and guilt, but is a grace that points us to the finished work of the cross on our behalf. Truth for the follower of Jesus actually frees us and draws us to grace-filled transformation rather than pride-filled performance. You see, this is how Nehemiah begins. He says, man, things are really, really broken. But following his honest assessment, he continues to call God's people to the work before him in two main ways. First, he motivates them. He says, I know things are broken down. But then he says, come, let us build the wall. His motivation is that the work of rebuilding is going to take all of them. And that they have been called into this work together for the display of God's glory. For they are a light to the world around them. Or at least they should be. Following his motivating speech, he encourages them. He says, look, I'm not claiming this by my own authority. Again, he says, I'm proclaiming it. And you should be encouraged by this, by God's good hand. Because guess what? God's hand is always good. Even when it doesn't look like it's always good. He says, God's good hand is upon me for good. He says, but if you don't believe that, and you should, he says, hey, look, I come in the authority of the king of Persia, who's, who's a fake king. And the people's response, which is the response I believe the church today is being called into, is this. They say, let us which again is community focus. They say, let us rise up and build. God's people buy into the vision of revival and rebuilding. For us today, we are all called to buy into the work God has for us here and now. And it's not just a Sunday buy-in. And in response, we must not do so lightly, but by strengthening our hands for the good work before us. That's what people in the story do we strengthen our hands for the good work before us not an easier work but a good work you see transformation of what surround us surrounds us begins by the hard and exposing transformation of what is first inside of us If we hope to see that which is broken down around us revived and rebuilt, we must first begin by allowing God and others entrance into the broken things of our own hearts. We begin here and then move out. And why I believe this is the foundation, this is why I believe this is found in the closing verses of the chapter. For while the people are motivated, encouraged, and ready to enter the good work, what do we see? Guess what? Opposition's still there. The same people are opposed and they despise what's happening. Guess what? Opposition, the enemy's defeated, but opposition has not left us. Satan is a turd. 
And he will not stop seeking. Sorry, I've always wanted to do that. But I'm serious. He is. He will not stop seeking to oppose and bring a stop to the work of God. He continues to come back over and over and over again. And our call is to continue to proclaim the hope of the gospel to his face. For we, like Nehemiah, can trust and know that the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we who serve the good king will arise and build by his power. For there, in the words of Matt Chandler, is no part of heaven or earth by which God's redemptive plan and authority do not and will not claim. That's mine. That's the end of the story, right? At the end, no part is not his. It's all his now. Like all authority is what? In heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. One day we'll see it fully. And even those parts that we're like, that wasn't very good. He says, yeah, but it's mine. And he uses it. One day, the foolishness of Satan will be fully on display. And his failure will be finished. And he will be destroyed forever. But until then, may we seek the work of revival and rebuilding. May we cast aside all the stuff that tries to get our attention. We look to God in prayer. May we allow Him to expose that which is broken in our hearts. May we allow those around us to be a part of that. May we rise up and build. This is the hope we have. This is the work we're called to. May we cry out for the revival and rebuilding of the broken things within us and around us. And may we, by the power of the Spirit, strengthen our hands for the work and enter in together because it's going to take all of us. Every single one of us. So today, what is it you need to stop doing and start praying for? Stop doing and start praying for. What's God called you to walk in obedience to and how are you dependently praying and boldly asking? I'm going to have the team come back up. Today, how are you battling demonic opposition around you? Hear this. We do not battle against flesh and blood. Satan would like us to believe that, but we don't. And yet we stumble into it all the time. Do you tend to act first and assess later? And if so, how do you need to repent of your misstep and align yourself in honest assessment and gospel motivation? encouragement and community engagement with those in the church so that you so that we might strengthen our hands for the work of revival and rebuilding that we've been called into what in you needs to be transformed inside of you so that you might be empowered for the work before us again begin with you walk in health and along the way proclaim the hope and good news that's found in the gospel We're all invited into this. Every follower of Jesus is invited into this. They're actually, you're commanded into this. 
It says, go and make disciples. It's not just for the few. It's for all of us. And man, today you sit in this room and you're like, man, I don't know anything about that. I don't have that hope. I don't look to God like, man, submit your life to Jesus today. He invites you in. He, he's willing to draw near. You need to talk about what that means. Man, I'll be up here today. Man, come and talk to me. He wants to do a good work in you. He wants to go do a good work in all of us. May we allow it to happen. So I want to invite you to respond, to maybe wrestle with some of those questions, to, to, to ask the Spirit to assess your own heart and your life. And we're going we're gonna to worship here in just a moment. But man, I, I also, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and share in communion. And what communion represents is that Jesus said, man, God, like, I'm going to fully submit myself. Not my will, but your will. And he gave of himself so that we might have not just life, but freedom from the brokenness. Jesus rebuilds what we cannot. We cannot bring deadness to life. But he does. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and in remembrance, sharing that. If you're not, man, we believe that this is, man, this is a sacred and special thing because what it reminds us of is what Jesus has done for us. So if you are not, man, we would ask that you not come. But I, again, I would love to talk to you about what this means and why we, we have the hope we have. So God, I thank you that we can give glory to your name. That there is hope to be found in, in you, the word that put on flesh. Lord, lead us to lay down our pride. God, empower us. To give us eyes to see that the, 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 the half-hearted faith, the, the above-ground faith is not what you've called us to. Deepen us. Expose the broken things and bring healing. Unite us as the church so that we might be a part of the building that you've called us to each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.